Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Well, good morning and happy Veterans Day to my fellow veterans out there who are listening. This is my last Veterans Day on active duty. I will be going out and getting my free cup of Starbucks here in a few hours once uh, they open. In case you're wondering why I speak in a low voice, usually I'm recording these intros right before I publish. Most times it's at 5 o'clock in the morning. Right now it's at 2.30 in the morning, so uh, I have sleeping family members and I don't want to wake them. Yesterday, this podcast surpassed the 25,000 play mark. Very proud of that. In fact, as I get ready to release this, we're sitting at 25,030 listens. And starting on us, our journey to the next 25,000 is Steve Coopersmith. Steve is managing partner at the Coopersmith Law Firm, LLP, and he does business corporate litigation. He's a fine art dispute lawyer, a strategist, and he's selected for the Business Journal's San Diego 500 list of the most influential business leaders in San Diego. And as you'll hear in our conversation, Steve, who only did one tour or one stint in the Army three years, credits of all things running a VITA tax center as giving him the courage and setting the basis for his ability to switch over into business litigation and stepping out on his own with his own law firm in San Diego, an army guy in San Diego. And so this was a very enjoyable conversation for me. I had never met Steve before this conversation, but, you know, just like so many in the military, you have that instant connection, that instant bond. So uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Steve Coopersmith. Steve Coopersmith, here's the most intriguing question I have for you. How does an army guy who went to the University of Pennsylvania and then went to law school in San Francisco, end up in a Navy town like San Diego? He, you know, it's, it's a fun day to, to ask me that because I'm in the San Diego Rotary Club, the 33rd uh, Rotary Club. It's actually the 10th largest Rotary Club that we have down here in downtown San Diego. And I'm a member since 2010. Today was the salute to the, the military and salute to the armed forces. And we had the Marine Corps band today play and we had a brigadier general that's in charge of the marine corps recruit depot speak and so it's perfectly appropriate to have this podcast and to talk about sort of military all things military so when they they played the four songs of the you know the army navy marine corps and and an air force and actually there's five songs now because apparently there's a, a space force song which is great and for the army song i stand up there's like one other guy and, you know, the, then the Navy, the Navy song, and there's, you know, there's a whole room full of, of people that are standing up. Marine Corps, same thing. Air Force, there are few, few less people. But it's, an, yeah, it's, it is a Navy and Marine Corps town for sure. And Army is sparse. But the military community 
welcomes you in, you know, and especially for all things military, you know, as well as I do, that if you're military, there's nothing like that. And having that experience carries with you for really the duration of your life. There's no getting away from it. And people who've never been there probably do not realize that San Diego is a small major city uh, itself, the downtown. You know, I lived in Coronado twice and would go over to San Diego. I used to catch the bus from Coronado to go to the Padres game. And if you didn't hit the podcast that I released the last Saturday in October, one of my great friends out there is now the military affairs outreach for the San Diego Padres because he used to be on the other side of the fence doing ethics at Navy Region Southwest. So if you haven't linked up with Johnny Nelson, Johnny Baseball, be sure to do that. I sure will. Absolutely. So Steve, I was just looking at your LinkedIn page and I saw that you've been out of the army for 15 years. So just to correct you. So I've been, sorry, I've been out of the, I've been out of the army for 20, 23 years. So I've had my own law firm for about 15 years. That's that's what it is. I'm sorry. Take us through, how long were you in the army? So I was in for three years, three years and like a month. I needed to extend for a month. And then, and then that was that. I was just talking about this in in a to-do meeting that we had in my law firm. That army experience, that three years was the most formative period of my adult life, for sure. You know, I've been out of the military for 23 years. I met my wife in the JAG Corps. She was also a JAG. You can talk a little bit about that as well. And we moved down to here to San Diego in 2000, in, in January 2000. And yet we carry with us that memory and that the light of that fire that we had back in in the the late 90s. So three years. And were you mostly in litigation when you were in the uh, three years? Yeah. So I'll walk you through what I what I remember about my experience. So after the training in Fort Lee and the JAG school, I was stationed at primarily at Fort Lewis, Washington, what was called then. Now it's called Joint Base Lewis McCord because of the Air Force Base that was right there. So I was in legal assistance, classic sort of classic thing for a few months. I was tasked to run the tax center. So we had something like hit something like 30,000 taxes. I was like, you want me to do what now? And I, I got trained up on taxes. They sent me to a VITA course, you know, to learn up that. And suddenly I've got 11 soldiers. This is a classic military experience, right? All of a sudden, I haven't managed anyone in my whole life. And all of a sudden, I've got 11 soldiers that are tasked under me. I've got to train them on, on taxes. I've got to then, you know, supervise the tax center. We did something like 30, 40,000 tax returns in the few months that we were open. It was wild. They even gave me like a, a fairly senior sergeant. He had some medical, some like, you know, leg leg issues or something like that. And so he was, but he was great. He was happy to to be a part of the team and and he was helping me, you know, manage those folks. And it was, it was the best experience that I that I ever thought. So immediately after that, as a treat for that, coming out of the the tech center, I was uh, the rest of my time in the military, I was a trial counsel. I advised what was then the core support group, 593rd Core Support Group. I advised the 2nd and 75th Ranger Battalion, so Ranger Command, and then a, the Triple Nickel the, and Combat Engineers, an, an engineering uh, brigade. And that was my kind of my purview and advised those commanders and, you know, and tried a whole bunch of cases to courts martial. And, and that, was, that was that. And then got out in, in January 2000. Yeah, so I was going to say, you got out just as the new century began. So most of your service in the Army happened last century. 
Did you immediately move down to San Diego or move out to San Diego? Where did you land after you left the Army? Sure. I grew up on the East Coast. My wife grew up on the East Coast. I had been in, in California going to law school, and I loved California. And she wasn't sure wh where she was going to go and what she wanted to do. And so we went down. My dad had moved to San Diego and had retired in San Diego just around that time. And we went out to visit him. And I remember it was like a Santa Ana wind kind of time where it was it was like 80 degrees in like a january or february kind of kind of day we were like yeah this sounds great so we came down here we both got good positions we were able to get at that time my wife went to dartmouth undergrad and george washington university law school and we were able to get very good jobs in good firms at, at that time and we started our our private practice and I have my own firm. I've had my own firm for about 15 years, and my wife is managing partner of her firm that has about 40 lawyers or so, and she's managing partner as of this year. So I, I'm going to get to you starting your own firm. And by the way, guys, as as we're talking here, he's drinking out of his Steve Cooper Smith coffee mug, but he's drinking tea. So what did you specialize? What did you focus on when you left the army and got hired by your first law firm? I was really lucky to to land in a, in a really great firm. It was a boutique firm, boutique in the sense that all of those guys in that firm had come from large firms and it was high-end business litigation, business litigation, corporate um, litigation, antitrust, RICO, claims that were fairly sophisticated and fairly intense. You think of yourself at a three-year level for, coming from the JAG Corps, you think of yourself as a trial lawyer. And I, I remember coming into trial and I was helping a, a senior partner try a case. And, you know, we've got, suddenly we've got 40,000 documents and, you know, 20 binders of, of documents just for the trial exhibits. And it's a different kind of trial. It's not to say that any of those trials that we all had in, in the JAG Corps weren't intense in their own very, very distinct way. But a business and corporate trial has a very distinct kind of thing. It's very document heavy. It's very impeachment heavy because you've got tons of depositions and tons of documents. And the key is kind of finding those documents. So it was a, a, a great firm. I learned from some great, some really great folks. The story I always tell about coming from my, what I call my asbestos-filled army office <laughs> with a printer held together with duck with uh, you know 100 mile an hour tape coming to my my office in beautiful tower in in San Diego and they're walking me past I think all former jazz can can appreciate this they're walking me past the huge space like the size of a of a double office with all the office supplies and there's nothing but office supplies in this in this space right and you know, I'm thinking about like the times that we have to get the sergeant to get us like a couple of pens and a couple of, you know, a couple of pads of paper. And they're walking me past this. I'm like, was that all office supplies? And they're like, yeah, anything you see in there, you can take. And there's like 10 bins of pens, right? She's walking me past that. And she says, hey, if there's if there's a pen that you really like and we don't have, just tell your secretary and they'll just like order a whole bunch for you. So you've got that. And I'm like, this is good. I like this. I can I can be I can, I can stick with this. You know, I can't identify with that. I'm thinking of the black pens that are ma mass manufactured for say US government on it. So you did that for about 8 years. You went into different firms. Take us through the decision to launch your own law firm. And and I was just, you know, if anybody goes to your LinkedIn profile, they will see a post 
which is a reflection by you of the fact that you launched your firm in October of 2008. And you talk about how you knew then that you would never work for anybody else again. So take us through the process, the decision, the anxiety of opening up your own practice. Absolutely. And it's so palpable. I can remember those sort of those that decision-making process like it's yesterday. So I, as I said, I'd worked for some, some very good firms. I worked for those, those firms here in town and I felt like those firms really gave me this really great, these great connections to be able to kind of talk to people, some great mentors. I had fantastic mentorship and I really liked all of the people that I worked for, but I worked for them. And I have this feeling with the personality that I had and the kind of like spirit, I guess, that I that I had, that I could, I don't want to say build a better mousetrap. That's the classic thing to say about an entrepreneur. But I felt like I wanted to kind of do it my way. And I had sort of hashed out some of the plans to be able to do that before the financial crisis, you know, as things were heading into that time. At, at that moment, I knew that I, that's what I needed to do. And, you know, I thought it, maybe perhaps I was crazy leaving a job at that time where everybody else was like clinging to their jobs, but it felt like the right moment. And it felt like the thing for me to do in, in my life. And I don't know how to describe it other than I always felt for years that from the experience that I was describing about management of the tax center, I knew that I had some of that skill set. I knew that I understood how to do that. And to be compassionate and to to understand people and to and to be sort of the give and take of being a of being a, a boss. And I, I wanted to sort of see what that was like. And I knew that I had the credentials to go back and work for anybody else if it didn't work out. And also, I should say, great thanks to my my wife, who had a, a, her, her own practice at, at that point with a great firm. And so we had it wasn't just me as the sole brainer. I don't know that I would have had. I'd like to say that I would have had the courage, but I don't know that I would have had the fortitude to be able to do that in the early months of starting a business. It's every day you're 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 trying to figure something out, you know. Yeah, it was great. It was great. It, it was the, the best decision I ever made. How big is your firm? It's gone, you know, up and down through the years. Um, we've we've had as many as six or seven people, maybe seven or eight at, at, at some point. Right now we have one, two, three, four lawyers and a paralegal, and a, a, a really wonderful legal assistant. Everything else is outside. We have an outside IT professional. We have an outside bookkeeper who's who, who I've had for, for years, who really keeps us on track, an outside accountant, and all of those other things you can get outside. So it's how many? So that's for four, four, six, six people at this point. When you're looking to hire, what goes into your mindset? How do you identify talent? How do you identify that you know these are the people that I want to bring on board? I want to allow them to come under my brand, and I think they would further, for lack of a better term, my, the mission of my brand. I think the most important thing you said was allow them to come in under my brand. Th that's a very good way of looking at it, especially when you have a firm where it's your name on the door, and it's it, you have to you have to have a connection with them in a way that resonates with you. And that could mean so many different things to different people. But in some way, you feel like this is a person that I can trust. This is a person that will trust me. And this is a person that, that I can work with in a way that I feel good about. I feel like I can bring in the work and I've been, I've 
fairly good at that, that part of it. And I can bring in the work. I need people to really do a team that I can, that I can have do a lot of that work and trust to really like, okay, to be serious people, to really sort of focus on details and to realize that our clients are people and companies. They get our bill in the mail at the end of the, at the end of the month, whether they're a large company or whether they're a, a, a small mom and pop kind of business. And I'll talk a little bit about what we do in a little bit, but you know, they're going to get that bill. And, and when we, we put our time and we, our descriptions of what we do, that's a person that's working for me that I know is, has the, the, the client's interest at heart and understands the sort of honor of being a, a, a lawyer or, or working at a law firm. So you're in San Diego. Are your clients nationwide or are they mostly based in the San Diego region or California? That's gone a, 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 different ways at different times. I have a, a large insurance client that's based in New York. I have uh, some some companies that are based in both Texas and, and and otherwise. And yet, a lot of the business that I have is California based, and with it tends to be California and and specifically San Diego companies. Because part of that is that the way that I've gotten business is to be out and about. I guess I would say to be present in the community, to be part of a Rotary Club, to be um, to be connected to to people and to follow up with them in a way that that is. I, I guess I would use the word organic. It's organic in the way that it's not just a, a like a here's my business card, hire me. That's never going to work. But to have a a connection with them that, that that again you know resonates with them. Yeah. Now we and you and I were talking a little bit before we came on the air and. I was sharing my job search and you were talking about the divergent roads. And I mean, from you, where you sit now, looking back over 23 years, making that jump from a military practice to a corporate business setting, what are your views on that? How hard is it? Is it easier for younger guys and much tougher for older guys like me? Is it possible? What do you think are the key attributes or skills that someone has to do to be able to make that jump? We were talking, and we were talking a little bit about this before. I think that first of all, the earlier that you transition, certainly it's easier to make that jump. I will say that first time, that first few months, really almost year in corporate practice versus the military was a shocker in many, many different ways about how people are not necessarily honorable. You don't have necessarily that that backbone that people have it's different and there are some pros and cons but they're very different community i think that the older and i'll say more experienced you are as a jag lawyer i think there are some difficulties in going into the corporate world it's certainly possible it's just that it's it's certainly practical it's just that there are different skill sets that start to diverge i believe and part of that is really, it's not just management of people, but management of money and understanding kind of what that what that means to different people and how to kind of figure out the, the best way to to kind of translate that into, into law practice. I think it depends on what you're doing. For business and corporate law, and, and I, I think this is a good time to tell you just generally what I do is I handle a lot of business, what are called business divorces. So <laughs> basically businesses that break up. So sometimes those cases can be somebody comes to me with there's an executive who is ousted and there's an employment agreement and 
and there's stock option issues and there's ownership disputes and there's a share in that company. And I've handled on both sides of that, of that kind of dispute. Sometimes there's a financial fraud allegation within a company. Sometimes this is often people leave a company. Some, some people leave a company and take what are, what are alleged to be trade secrets with them. And so I handled really both sides of, of all of those cases. And those cases are really the bread and butter of what I, what I do in my practice. And I think that coming back to the, the question, you can definitely pick that up. But those are things that you wouldn't really necessarily be a part of and, a, and inherently understand as a JAG. I think there are other things that you would. For example, a lot of folks come out and they then they become criminal defense lawyers or prosecutors. And I think that is very, very, very easy to treat, especially if you come a if you're in the federal system and become a federal prosecutor or a federal public defender and, or, or a criminal defense lawyer handling that. You're much more in that vein of, you know, the the military rules of evidence are effectively the federal rules of evidence plus, right? So there's a lot of similarities in that in that kind of way. For management purposes, and this is the strength that I think that JAGs have that have your your experience level. The real strength is that you've managed teams and teams and teams of people where many lawyers, especially if they're in a large firm and they really have only been like they've managed maybe their own little team. They really often haven't had that kind of that kind of experience, knowing how to deal with people, how to deal with their with their plights and their and their own issues, and to work that into a a, a professional team that produces and and adds value. That's a, I think where someone that is an experienced jag can really can really fly, you know, in a way. What you've done of making a jump from trial counsel and invited tax. Prepare and and by the way, you made me think because I don't even think I'm not even sure they do that anymore. You know, I ran tax centers or satellite offices, and I did taxes in the military. I think the last time I did it was assisting a dependent, and they had like computers available, and you did your own because someone, at least in the Navy, had made a determination of the liability that they really shouldn't be touching it. And of course, with the proliferation of TurboTax and HR block and all that, I don't even think that they offer it anymore because it's become so ubiquitous. It has. In that moment, so this would this would have been 97. In that moment, there was a, it was at the cusp of some of the electronic, like the, the TurboTax wasn't really, it, it wasn't really as strong as, as, and it, as it later became. A lot of military folks went to HR Block. A lot of people were trying to do their own and perhaps sometimes failing at it because it, it is difficult. You have to kind of think about a number of different things. The VITA program was great at that moment. That I mean, certainly as technology improved and allowed people to kind of plug in their, their W-2 numbers and all of that kind of stuff, that changed, right? But I think at that time, that was very useful for people to be able to do. And like I said, the most difficult ones that I remember were sometimes folks had their own side business or their yeah. or their spouse had a side business. And we'd see all kinds of interesting things that they they tried to do we sorting out receipts. And this is the days of paper. You know, we were sorting out receipts and trying to figure out about some of that. We, we had the three-star general at, <laughs> at Fort Lewis came through our tax center. The command sergeant major came through our tax center. It was a great honor, but we had to make sure that we did it. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I recall uh, the side business. I remember there was this, in my case, a surface warfare officer who had come up through the enlisted banks. His wife ran a daycare center uh, when they were at 
previous duty station and they had taken up all the depreciation up front. And of course, you know, we had no training that we're, we're used to boom, 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 getting them done. And I remember having to look, figure out recapture and schedules and all that. And I remember then him calling me saying, oh, by the way, we just got noticed we're deploying on Sunday instead of in two weeks. And I had to like go in on a Saturday, finish up his tax return and meet him on the ship, him and his wife as they're an hour before they were pulling away from the pier to get them to sign off on their tax returns. And, you know, in, in one sense, I never probably would have done that, you know, had I just become a lawyer. But in the military, it was like the mission and figuring out how to do it and diving in the regs and having the courage and the protection against liability to do that kind of thing. <laughs> and protection against liability. Absolutely. But that precise issue is a good way of describing this sort of somewhat of the difference of. So in, in the government, you can really this is government wide. They're like, okay, here's the file. Okay, you're go and run with it, go with God, right? I mean, good, good luck to you, you know. And you get structure and you get training and you get all of that stuff. But you know, plenty of jags get tasked with doing something that they're like, oh, okay, I guess I could do this. And that tax center was a really good example of something that it convinces you if you're able to do it. And you're suddenly, like I said, I got 11 soldiers that are under my command, so to speak, that I'm I'm got to train up and, and deal with for this tax center. And what, what that showed me was that I could handle something that I really didn't think that I, I would be able to do and something that I didn't really think that was sort of maybe over my head, and I would be able to handle that. And that has affected my law practice in the way that I think about taking on new cases. And I'll give you a great example of that. So in 2000, about 2014 or so, I had my for my firm for about six years or so at that point. And I get approached by the principal unions, large labor unions in San Diego. And they say, hey, we want to challenge the way that downtown San Diego is permitted and planned. And we think that there's a little bit of corruption within the agency. It's a private public agency that was tasked and contracted out to do the permitting and planning in downtown San Diego. And I said to them, without waiving privilege, I said, that's great, guys, but I'm not a like a municipal lawyer. And they said, oh, that's okay. We can get municipal lawyers as experts. Not a problem, right? I said, great. I should tell you, I'm really not a land use lawyer. I'm like a business and corporate lawyer. And they said, yeah, no, no, that's right. I said, okay, but like, why are you here in my office? If you could get all these guys down up and down the state. They said, oh, yeah, we, we can tell you why. Because we heard from distinct sources that you're a bulldog and that you're not afraid of anyone. And I said, well, all right, you know, I, that's very nice to hear. I, I think that for a litigator, that's about the best compliment that I think you could get. And so, all right, let's 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 go for it. As long as you understand that, that this is not really my practice area. And we did it and we got, you know, a bunch of years later, we had something like eight mediations with the city. We got them to sever the tie between that agency, which did have some real problems and the city of San Diego. And, and that's whole bunch of newspaper articles and a whole bunch of podcasts and other kind of stuff later, we were able to, to succeed in that greatly. So I will attribute that to the tax center and the trial council and all of those things where you're handed those opportunities and you've got to either seize the day or suffer the consequences, I guess. All right. So I'm just looking through your your profile here as you were speaking. And that's it's amazing. And, and it, you know, that bulldog attitude that your reputation alone attracted clients that otherwise wouldn't have been looking at you. So fun fact about you, 
Sotheby's Institute of Art. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at this. So a 1992 grad of the University of Pennsylvania, a 1996 grad of uh, the former UC Hastings in San Francisco, and a 2017 Sotheby's Institute of Art, Art, Law, and its Market Summer Study Certificate. What was the motivation behind doing that? You know, I grew up in the New York area, and my mom brought me to every museum that you could think of. When I was a kid and being dragged around to museums, it didn't really dawn on me that that, that was of any value. And as I got older and I saw that I really understood a little bit more about, about art and was interested in, in that, my wife and I started collecting art. I started representing, I backed into art law, representing a, a gallery and an art an, an art dealer that was in a business dispute, having nothing to do with with the art itself. It was a business dispute. And I saw that that was of interest to me. And I wanted to be able to service more art-based clients. And so I did this sort of summer study where I went and it was the best experience. I, I went to the Sotheby's Institute of Art, which is wonderful in New York for a couple of weeks, stayed in a nice hotel, enjoyed, you know, go for runs in the morning in, in Central Park, and then and then would go to, to the summer study, did that for a couple of weeks, got this, you know, got this very nice little certificate. And what that really gave me was the confidence and understanding to be able to kind of get a little bit more involved in that. And I have an auction house that I represent. I have a number of art collectors and artists and art dealers that I represent. And I love that area. It's a side project for me. Uh, you know, I'll call the practice areas that we have often the things that Steve Coopersmith is interested in. So yeah. That, that's fascinating. If you ever get to DC, I'll show you a couple pieces of detainee art I have from Guantanamo that they gave me. But so Steve, Balboa Park, you hit the museums there? Absolutely. Yeah. I served on the board of trustees for the San Diego Museum of Art for a couple of years. I love Balboa Park. But I know Balboa Park, it's a jewel of a park within a jewel of a city. Great Park's got a bunch of great museums, automotive museum too, air and space museum, and a whole lot of really just great land, great running trails and great places to be. And people don't understand how diverse San Diego can be. I mean, within a couple of hours, you can be Big Bear, you could be skiing in the winter. Of course, you've got the beach, you've got the water, you've got the sailing. I've got a friend who's a civilian defense counsel there in San Diego, Jay Sullivan, huge sailing nut. In a couple of hours, you could be out in the desert. It's just a phenomenal, diverse place to jump off in. And, you know, we, we were fortunate to do two tours. We did two years on a Nimitz strike group based out of uh, North Island, went to Newport, Rhode Island for a year for school and came back for three years and again lived in Coronado. Am I uh, correct to understand that you live sort of north of San Diego? Yeah, so I live in, in an area called La Jolla, a great place to live. One thing about me, another hobby that I have is I'm an open water swimmer, so year-round open water swimmer, and I swim in the La Jolla Cove, the larger La Jolla Cove, all year round, no wetsuit, and enjoy that. No wetsuit. That's a brave man right there because that water out in San Diego can can be a little bit chilly. Pacific can be cold, and it gets down to about 55, 56 in the winter, but those are, you know, sh let's just say shorter swims. But you you feel like your your core is is burning and your extremities get numb. But you you know you get out of out of that and you get in a in a hot tub or a, sh a, cold, a warm shower and you feel a lot. So it's a it's a that's a good place to be. I'm very very uh, I love the La Jolla area and that cove is just uh, talking about a jewel. It tr truly is. Yeah, that's why I got I, when Dan Sommer, who 
by the way, Dan will give me feedback on every podcast, which I really do appreciate. And I'm sure he's going to mention the fact that I mentioned his name and give me feedback on our conversation. But I got to give you special props because what people don't know and really don't need to know is that I actually dropped the ball on our previously scheduled interview. I'm going to blame partly for I just got off travel from uh, driving cross country with my son. And the other part I'm going to blame is the government habit of Columbus Day is a day off or Indigenous Peoples Day. And you was a regular scheduled work day. Well, yeah, it, it was this year. We're just we're super busy this year. And we we take holidays off, of course, but that particular day, you're absolutely right that we we scheduled it, and and uh, so I, I'll take I'll take my bad as as well on that. So no, yeah. no, that was that was all me, and I just want to publicly say thank you for the second chance to engage you in this conversation, to have you on my podcast, to talk about your career progression from running a tax center, being a trial counsel, <laughs> to doing all these business disputes out in San Diego. It's a great story. It's a motivational story. And I wish you and your wife continued success. Thank you so much. That's great, Tom. I appreciate it. Good talking to you. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.